You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. So when does the ordinary turn into the extraordinary? When does the mundane turn into the miraculous? When does one equal thousands upon thousands? The very simple answer is when everyday people surrender their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ and all of a sudden with him as Savior and Lord live out their lives as the church every single day. So we're in week five of our series, My People, where we're looking at what it means to be God's people in the church. Through salvation in Christ, every single one of us is made a part of the body of Christ, the family of God, and it's called the church. The the church universal is every believer all over the world. There's a local expression which you're a part of today right here at In Focus. We are made a part of God's family. That's what this whole series has been about, right? That you are my people because we are God's people first. And because we are God's people, whether we know each other or not, we are now family you are my people what is problematic as we mentioned last week is that we're good with having the title God's people we're not so good with trying to follow God's plan hey I like being God's people well if you're God's people God's got a plan for you to be his people and how to live that out yeah I'm not sure if I'm so good with that and the reason I know this is because I'm a human just like you and our default is to say something like this God I can like and God I'm down with it's the people that I have a problem with God I like you I love you but man these people these people that you're calling me to do life with and I hear you I get it, but God's reply is pretty clear. In 1 John chapter 4, he says, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. So being God's people, everyday people, being God's people every day has a massive caveat that the title comes with some tasks, that our identity, our group identity comes with some group projects that we're supposed to do and live together. As one commentary puts it, we by nature love things that are seen before we love things that are unseen. The eyes are our leaders in love. Seeing is an incentive to love. And that's what I felt the first time that I saw Carla. The seeing her was an incentive to love her. This is how we respond in life. Seeing things is our incentive to loving things. It could be food. It could be a place. It could be all kinds of things that we see with our eyes. This being the case, if we do not love our spiritual family the visible representatives of God in the earth, which we see, then how can we love God, the invisible one, who is their father? And John says, you can't. It's impossible to say you love one 
God and not love the other people. So and if your answer is like mine sometimes, well, I, I, don't, I don't know, but I just do. I just love God and I don't love people. I don't know. But we got to do better than that. We can't just say, I don't know. It's like with our kids when we ask them a question and the answer is, I don't know. And, and what I hear their mother say all the time is, that's not an answer. You know, well, it, it is. It's just not an acceptable one, right? I don't know. No, you do know. So please, enlighten me. I want to know. So let me give you a shot at, at, at an answer from my perspective. An attempt at a reason why we say we love God and it's easier to love God than it is to love people. And it's easier to say that we love God who we don't see, don't have to interact with necessarily, and who doesn't talk back when we talk to him. Other than someone who we physically see and communicate with in real face-to-face life. Someone who might even get on our nerves. Someone who might tell us something that we don't want to hear, even though we do need to hear it. Or somebody, actually, if we think about it, that might contribute to our anxiety and pain, because a lot of times that's involved in relationships, and we don't need any more anxiety and pain, so we just rather not have any more relationships. On the other hand, it's easy for me to tell God what I think and what I want with no pushback. It's easy to create a God who thinks like me and, and acts like me and decides things like me. And then it's quite normal for me to go tell everybody what the Lord has said. Because it's unverifiable and unwinnable argument if the Lord has said it and it doesn't necessarily contradict with the Bible. It's the ace up the sleeve, right? Well, the Lord has said, the Lord told me this. And the problem is many times, especially outside of the context of the body of Christ, where God has called us to properly relate, we could create a God of our own thinking and our own mind who thinks just like we think and tells us exactly what we want to hear. And then we tell everybody, this is what God has said. So if you have your Bible with you today, let's turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12, again. This is where we're going to uh, read today. We started here last week, Romans chapter 12, verse 9, and the intention to go through a few verses, but we just stayed in verse 9. So I want to pick up in verse 10, but before I do that, I want to go back in a little bit and review what we said about verse 9. Discovering our call as God's people, verse 9 says, is to what? Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, and clean to what is good that's verse 9 that's what we talked about last week this is the heart that all of the rapid fire exhortations that we're going to go through today in verse 10 11 12 and 13 this is the heart which all of these actions are supposed to flow from this is where they come from what kind of heart one that is full of genuine love one that hates what is evil and one that clings to or remember what that word means is welded to what is good I love that imagery uh, Don and I one of our elders was talking about that last week I love the imagery of being welded to what is good and this is the type of heart that we have these actions that we're about to read flowing out of. And listen, what do we cling to? What are we welded to? What is good? What is good? Is it subjective? No, it's objective. It's what God says is good. Not what I say is good. Not what I say is evil. Hopefully those line up with what God says. But objectively, there is good and evil according to what God says. And here's why this is important. Because there are things going on in your life, maybe even right now, that don't fit feel or look good, but God is going to use them, as his word says, for your good because your heart belongs to him. Consequently, and, and maybe antithetically, there are things going on in your life that are not good, that God doesn't want you to do, but they look good to you right now. And they're going to destroy you. 
So we can't go subjectively by what we think is good and evil. We have to go objectively by what God and his word says is good and evil. And when we find what is good, we cling to it. And when we find what is evil, we hate it. We love what God loves and we hate what God hates. Now, let's read verse 10. This is the heart, the genuine love heart, clinging to good, hating evil that this flows out of, that we would be devoted, verse 10, to one another in brotherly love, that we would give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. So let me go ahead and make sure that we don't have any exegetical fallacies right now. Uh, Like uh, one of my friends last week mentioned, when we refer to the needs of the saints, we're not talking about New Orleans football fans. We're talking about Christians. Just want to clarify. I know this is football Sunday. We have some saints fans here. That's not talking about you. There's actually other verses that talk about deception that are talking about you. And this one is talking about Christians. Okay. Now, Remember these passages are in the context of Romans 12. That's what's important when we go into the scripture, right? That we're not just pulling out a few verses. These verses, 10, 11, 12, and 13, are in the context really of all of the book of Romans, but specifically Romans 12, verse 1, which says that we're going to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. Verse 2, which says to don't be conformed to the pattern of this world any longer, but have your mind conformed to what? God's word and what he says, transformed, if you will, to him. And it's out of that dedicated life to God that Paul is talking about that verse 10 and 13 are these ordinary things turning into extraordinary things mundane things turning into miraculous things and it's a beautiful picture of the transformed renewed life that Paul is talking about what he's saying is he's connecting Christ's transformative work on our inner life to the outer application of that life with a community of believers called the church this is everyday people living like God calls us to live every day just normal ordinary mundane things done to the glory of God he's saying how we treat the real visible world of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is evidence of an inward transformation in our lives and and this is big Paul's not speaking to individual believers but he's speaking to a community of believers He's speaking to the church, the body of Christ. And I find this one of the hardest things for us to comprehend and apply in our lives for us because we grew up in this Western culture and thought. And if you didn't grow up in the West, maybe you were uh, in the military and stationed somewhere else, or maybe you're from another country and you grew up in another context or culture. But for those of us who grew up in the West, we have a very hyper-individualistic mindset which we often put on and interpret the Bible through. It's the lens with which we read the Bible sometimes. But the Bible is written to a collectivist society, not an individualistic society, where church members are spoken in familial terms, like brother and sister and father and mother, where kingdom relationships are depicted as believers' primary family. My family, the church family, is my primary family. That is the backdrop. That is the heart of the scriptural context when we read about the church. Early on, post-Great Awakening, the church membership started to change a little bit. It became more individualistic. 
It became more about my individual preferences and decisions of whether or not to associate with a particular church. And that's pretty much where we are today. That's not evil. It's just how we go about seeing if I'm going to be a part of a church. You are here out of your own volition to be here this morning. And you can leave on your own personal decision that I don't ever want to go to that church again. Or I'm tired of going to that church. That's what we have been given the freedom to do. So instead of everyday people spending time persevering with one another and living extraordinary, ordinary, miraculously mundane lives together every day, what we get is social clubs. What we get is a version of Christianity, of a cultural Christianity, if you will. As long as the church provides services I like and I need, I'll stay. But when I am no longer being fed the way I want to be fed or disapprove of the vision or the direction that I think the church is going, I'm out. Except this is not biblical Christianity. The Bible is clear when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to the church, when we give our lives to Jesus, when we become Christians, we become permanently and spiritually a part of a new family, God's family, the people of God, the church. And now I'm talking about the church universal. I'm talking about all over the world. That's the family we become permanently a part of. But there is a local expression and a local outworking that we live this out in real life relationships and it's called the local church. And this is where we're to do these things that I just read. These responsibilities and these expectations that are given to the family of God. And these are our familial responsibilities. The Bible gives us, and they're in direct opposition to cultural Christianity. Here's what one author wrote. We don't get to choose who else is a Christian with us. God does. And subsequently, we don't get to choose who's a part of our family. But we are committed to them, bound in the spirit, and we are not free to disassociate our identities from them, mainly because once we are in Christ together, our individual identities are no longer of primary importance. I didn't say they weren't important. They're just not the primary importance. So if you want to know who you really are in Christ, the Bible is saying you won't figure that out by yourself. You will figure that out in the context of the body of Christ, your family, your brothers, your sisters, and all of the people that God's called to walk alongside you, to shape you, to help you, to hold you accountable, to pray for you, to cause you to have, I don't know, anxiety, but you work through it. This is the context with which we are made more into the image of Jesus. And I know that's hard for us to get, and it it's almost fits like a starch shirt, like, oh, I don't know if I like that or not, because we have such an individualistic mindset, it's hard to take that in. But it's going to be necessary that we read the Bible the way that it was intended as to a body of people, a collectivist society, who understood what it meant to have a culture of honor and to have a culture of loving the family, if we're going to do what these verses say. Now, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. How are you gonna be devoted to one another in brotherly love if you don't understand that this is us doing this together? That I can't just go off into the corner like my wife asked me the other day. She's like, are you hanging out with anybody? I said, yeah, my three favorite people. She said, who? Me, myself, and I. And it was like, you know, I was, that was both sad and uh, true all at the same time, you know, right? 
And the truth of the matter is, I can't live life like that. You can't live life like that. We're called to live together as the body and brotherly love. That's the Greek word Philadelphia, which is where we get the term for the city. Philadelphia, the city of? Yeah, good. Civics 101. Okay, super. All right. Brotherly love. It means family. It means affection. It means devotion. This is real life, tangible love within the family of God. And be devoted is really that same kind of Greek word, a philostorgos. It's the same idea of, of love, a family tie, if you will. It's brotherly affection, the immediate family kind of love. Not like your fifth distant cousin that you don't really know, but your son, your daughter, that kind of love. That's what he's saying. That's how you're supposed to love one another. This is more than a strong resolve that I'm going to put on when I walk in here on Sunday morning to be nice to everybody. It's more than that. It's loving everybody even though I might not agree with everybody all the time. And let's be honest, there are other believers in the body of Christ that are not easy to get along with. Okay, good. At least somebody is honest today. And if you can't think or you don't know of who that person is, then it's probably you. I, I don't know. I can't think of anybody that's just hard to get along with. Ding, 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 ding. So we understand that. We understand that it's going to be difficult, but regardless of that truth, we're commanded to do something that's beyond our natural capacity. This is where the ordinary becomes extraordinary. This is where the mundane becomes miraculous. What we need is the gospel to change us from the inside out so that we would love one another with brotherly affection and be devoted to that on the outside in order that that one act of love would be multiplied thousands and thousands of times over in the body of Christ called the church. Before we move on, let me just practically clarify just a little bit because I know a lot of y'all are feeling pressure right now. You don't have to be best friends with everybody. Whew. Like you don't have to be best friends with everybody. You can't be best friends with everybody. I mean, as we talked about relationships over the years, it's like even if we look at the Bible and we see just how they break things down, you're probably gonna have, and psycho psychologically this is true, you're probably gonna have about 12 people that are kinda like your close people, then you're probably gonna have another six that are a little bit closer, three that are a little bit closer than that, and then maybe one that's your best friend. That's just how it breaks out. We see that in Christ's relationships. And so the, the reality is you don't have to be everybody's best friend in here. I'm not asking you to do that. But here's what I am asking you to do. That you realize that we have a common enemy. And so when the chips are down, we're ready to lay our lives down for one another, stay devoted to one another, because when this is all over and when the roll is called up yonder, when all of that happens, we're all going to the same house. And we're all going to be there with the same Savior living there together. You know how it was with your friend and you got done and you got mad with each other, maybe in the neighborhood and you went to your house or they went to their house and it was like, we'll figure it out tomorrow. That's not how heaven works, my friends. When this is all done, we're all going to the same place. So we are devoted to brotherly love. Let me just ask you this to put devotion, which is a, not really another word for love, love with brotherly love. Let me, let's, let's put devotion in context. Are you as devoted to the family of God as you are to your favorite sports team? No. Oh, oh pastor, that hurt, that hurt really bad. 
Listen, I am a fan of fans. You can ask anybody in my family, anybody that knows me, competitive. I, I, I'm a sports fan. I'm a diehard sports fan. My kids, when they were younger, my oldest boys, they would, they would take my phone and record me watching basketball and football games and then laugh at me and make fun of me because I'm standing up and I'm yelling at the TV and they're trying to embarrass me, right? And it was embarrassing. I was like, oh my God, please don't show anybody that. That's ridiculous. That's me. And here's the thing about this, and the reason that I'm saying this is like, look, love sports, that's fine, I do. I'm gonna watch football today, I watched it yesterday. Listen, all those things are great. I, 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 the Braves, the Falcons, whatever your team is. And here's the truth though, watch, we can find somebody in life that we've never seen before, don't even know. We can meet them at the gas station in New Jersey and we're from Evans. And if they have a sports team logo on their t-shirt, that's like the one that we like, it's like, hey! I don't know you. I'm a, I'm a Falcons fan. Well, what's up, brother? I mean, he could be a serial killer. And he, he, you could be a serial It doesn't matter. All of a sudden, your family and your best friends. And here's the truth of the matter. The reality is, is maybe you don't have the T-shirt or whatever, but when you find out that that person that's standing there that you don't know is a part of your team, the body of Christ, then you should be able to find something that is devoted to them no matter where you're from. I mean, I've had these conversations before. I, and I walk away sometimes like going, I had, like I've known that guy my whole life just because he had a Georgia Bulldog hat on. That's kind of weird. And there's that Christian over there that I can't stand. We're, we're jacked up. Give preference to one another in honor. Some translations say outdo one another in showing honor or compete in honoring one another. Look, you want to be competitive? Paul's saying, hey, anybody competitive, competitive spirit? I'm one of them. They compete with each other in being the one that's going to be the most honorable of somebody. Compete that way. Self-sacrificing competition for the privilege of putting somebody else first. Woo! That's what I want to come in first doing. And to be clear, none of us are ultimately honorable. None of us. And yet, we compete in honoring one another by serving them as though they were worthy of the service. This is exactly what Jesus did. He served us when we were still sinners, the scripture says. He died for us and sacrificed his life for us when we were not worthy of that honor at all. So you desire to serve more than you desire to be served. And it doesn't mean that you don't let anybody serve you and act all prideful or something. No, you do, but you're going to outdo. What if, church, all of us were competing with each other to outdo each other by serving each other and honoring each other? We would look so different that the world around us would notice what in the world is going on there. There must be something countercultural, otherworldly that is happening in their lives that they would love each other that way. And it is so countercultural because we live in a culture that is a world that likes to shame people into submission rather than serving them into surrender. I'm going to shame you to death so you'll do what I want you to do as opposed to just serving you and serving you until you surrender to the one that I've surrendered to. This is humility. It's the type of humility we see from Jesus doing these mundane things like what? Washing feet, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, ministering to needs wherever they were. You're hungry, he's gonna feed you, he's gonna speak to you, he's gonna talk to the marginalized, he's gonna lift up everyone, people that everybody else puts down over and over and over again. He does these things. 
Therefore, he sits at the seat of highest honor at the right hand of the Father, not because he had the most followers, not because he had the most likes, not because he had, what, celebrity status or as he was popular, but because he served. Paul now switches in the next verse, I believe verse 12 it is, he switches our attention to serving the Lord when he says, not lagging behind in diligence, but fervent in spirit serving the Lord. The word diligence is often substituted in some translations as business, but it does not refer to you know, how you handle yourself in your business. It, it refers to how you serve the Lord. Now, you should handle yourself diligently on your job, that's, but that's not what this scripture is about. This is about how we maybe better put a better phrase is that we would not lack in zeal in our service to the Lord. Both not lagging behind in diligence and fervent in the spirit are not like these singular things. Well, I'm, gonna lack, I'm not going to lack in zeal, and I'm going to be fervent in spirit. They're not, on their, they're not autonomous. They're being pointed to serving the Lord. So I'm not going to lag behind in zeal in serving the Lord. I'm going to be fervent in my spirit in serving the Lord. That's what they're pointed to. That's what they're directed at. Because there's a tendency, if we're honest, that we start off strong in this life with many things that we do, but we lag behind in diligence. The zeal wears off after a while. Am I right? Like the gym? I mean, we're killing it in January. Some of y'all are already thinking about how how great January is going to be. I don't know why we're waiting until January, but we're going to wait. And we start off strong. And then February hits, and and our GPS couldn't tell us how to get there if we asked it. Look, COVID hit, and I stopped going to the gym, and I hadn't been back since. That's why I got this thing. That's how I play the bass while y'all are worshiping down here every morning. My kids hate that. They're so embarrassed right now. Dad, don't, don't do the belly bass, please. But the truth of the matter is, there's all kinds of things in this life that we start off strong and we don't finish. We understand this. A healthy habit, a new eating regimen, a book reading plan, my version plan. Man, I got 18 friends that are going to do this version plan with me. We're going to read the whole Bible in a year. Like two weeks later, you're still in Genesis 1-2. Because why? The zeal acts. Don't worry, I got other things. What about some other things we start? A Bible study. A connect group, a giving plan. Am I hitting on anything that you've started and not kept up with? Has the excitement waned? Maybe it's your degree, maybe it's your career, maybe it's your job, maybe it's your calling, maybe it's your marriage. What about Christianity specifically? When some of you got saved, you were ready to tell anybody who would listen about what God had done in your life. You were gonna save the whole world if God would use you passionately loving the Lord, telling everybody that you met about Jesus, whether they were on your team or not. But over time, our service to the Lord, what? We get jaded, we get tired, we get discouraged, we get burned out, we get frustrated, and we divide, and all of the things that happen. But Paul is literally saying, don't do this. Let your calling have zeal. Be passionate about the Lord. Serve him. Serve the Lord. And listen, Paul's not promoting busyness. He's not promoting activity for activity's sake. What he's simply saying is we should consistently use our spiritual gifts to serve the body of Christ. Fatigue is going to come. Frustration is going to come. 
Weariness is going to happen. Weakness is going to hit you. That's why we have to persevere. That's why you need the body of Christ. You're not going to be weak and weary and frustrated and disillusioned and alone and get through it. It's just going to get worse. But when you push through the difficulty of pushing into the relationships that God has given you in the body of Christ, you realize that all of these things are normal feelings that we all have. If somebody told you that you were going to be a Christian to be a part of the church and never get frustrated, they lied to you. If somebody told you you're going to be a Christian and never get weary, never get weak, never get tired, never get despondent or hopeless, if they told you that was never going to happen, they lied to you. Because when you're weak, this is a good thing, God is strong. When you're weary, you bring that to him and he gives you rest. All of these things are going to happen. It's how we handle them that determines whether our love for God and our love for people is actually genuine. Listen, you're going to get weak. You're going to get weary. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to get disappointed. And that's okay. That's when Christ comes in and this is when you stay close to the body. It's okay for that to happen because that's how God strengthens us through his spirit and through one another. But what's not okay is to be fake. What's not okay is to pretend like everything's okay and it's not okay. What's not okay is to be apathetic. That's called being a hypocrite. And the Apostle Paul is saying it's not okay to be apathetic. Apathy cannot be a part of the believer's lives. Christians have to fight against discouragement, fight against negativity, do our best not to lag in zeal and diligence. And the second part of that attitude, to be fervent in our spirit. All that means is that we need to keep the spirit of God boiling in our hearts. That's what that Greek word fervent means. It's a a word that means to boil with heat, zeo effervescence, liveliness, exhilaration, becoming of the spirit of the one serving the Lord. That's why if you're gonna keep your spirit fervent, it's gonna happen while serving the Lord. Your spirit's not gonna be fervent if you're not serving the Lord. This is how the spirit stays fervent. Our lives should glow with the spirit's fire. And Paul is saying make sure your heart is engaged in your service to the Lord or it won't last. If it's just an obligation and never a true desire to serve God, however you're able, then you're gaining nothing and you're probably headed towards a collapse. You're certainly headed towards disillusionment and probably division because we serve in the context of the body. That's where the strength is found. And Paul tells us the spirit of God is to keep the boiling of our hearts rolling. You ever heard of that? Keep the boil rolling? Got nobody? Isn't that what a boiling does? Rolls? Okay, y'all don't ever, what, y'all just talk about to eat all the time. Y'all don't even know how to boil water. That's what we tell you. Man, you wouldn't even know how to boil water if you had to. And if this sounds impossible, it is apart from Christ. This is impossible apart from Christ, apart from the people of God, apart from the family of God. Whenever your zeal and your fervency start to wane, whenever you feel like giving up or walking away, remember who you serve. That's how you're going to keep this going. Remember who you serve and continue to serve alongside the body. Let the fact that you're serving the Lord make your fervency, your heart for people made in God's image, begin to boil again. And then lastly, well, second to last, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. The hope we rejoice in is the hope of glory. It's the hope of eternity with Christ. It's the hope of every believer. Not that tomorrow's gonna be better than today. It might be, but that's not really where my hope is. My hope is that I will live forever with Christ in heaven as a believer. That's the hope of glory. That's the hope of eternity. 
When we rejoice in hope, we're showing that our certainty in Christ and our expectation that he is a covenant-keeping God and he's going to do everything according to us, his people, according to his word, then we could and should regularly be able to look to the future that Christ has promised and gives us the ability to persevere in tribulation in the present. The ability to be patient in affliction, as some translations say, is by looking at what God has promised, knowing that it's true, and allowing that joy to intervene and to interject into my life right now. Even though what's going on right now isn't very joyful. And this happens in the context of the body. And if you didn't know this or not, what I see in this passage and what I know from personal experience and what I know from watching your lives and many people's lives over the years of ministry is that the body of Christ will go through tribulation. It will. The backdrop of our lives as human beings is pain and tribulation. That's the backdrop. It's not the forefront, it's not the foreground, that's the hope we have in Christ. But this word simply means pressure or oppression. And it can come from enemies, and it can come from illnesses. But we do know this from Scripture, that Satan's design is to destroy your faith. Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy whatever God loves, and God loves you, and he loves the church. So he wants to destroy your life. But on the other hand, the good news is, is that God wants to strengthen your faith. That's his design for your life. And he's so much stronger than the enemy. So if you don't have any tribulation, not to be a downer, but you will. This is not a threat. This is not even a warning. It's a promise of God's word. And it's a promise of God's word that although it's not comfortable, it yields Christ-likeness. And so whatever yields Christ-likeness, I want. What we sang just a moment ago, is it worth it, what I've been through, to become more like Christ? Because the furnace of affliction is what leads me to the refining of my life. So we go back to rejoicing. What are we rejoicing in? We're rejoicing in tribulation because of hope. The future is where our hope is fixed and that hope streams back into the present and it gives us joy right now. The tribulation itself is working in us something that Paul says is even greater than we can imagine. Something that is going to make our hope even more sure when it's over. And we don't just hope in spite of tribulation. We hope what? Because of tribulation. This is what my Savior went through. This is what Jesus went through and so much more. And so I'm getting to share in that right now. But one day, because of my sharing in his suffering, I also know that I'll be able to share in his resurrection. It's like that story that I've told many, many times here, hearing the evangelist. It's one of our pastors, I think now, in, in India. And he was a young evangelist in India and was preaching the gospel and in a very contentious place that he knew he could get in trouble, imprisoned, killed. And all of a sudden, people started throwing rocks at him. And I'm listening there, sitting there listening to his story, and it's like a rock started pelting him in the head, and he dropped to the ground, and he said he, he put his hands up on his head, and he saw blood all over his fingers, and he said, and I rejoiced. I'm like, What? That's exactly what he said. I rejoiced in the fact that I got to share in the sufferings 
of my Savior, that he counted me worthy enough to be able to share in this present suffering with him and for him. This is how we persevere. This is so much more than just holding on. It's finishing the race of faith well. And then lastly, we do this through prayer. How are you going to persevere through all that? By prayer, constancy and prayer. Ask, seek, knock, petition, lament, intercede, praise, exalt. Pray for your leaders. Pray for the nation. Pray for your, the nations around us. Pray for everything that you can pray about. Just keep praying. And then he says, as you treat one another, contribute to the needs of the saints and practice hospitality. I think we all understand and have heard or even experienced the reality that we're a very wealthy nation. And so it's hard sometimes for us to think about hospitality or contributing to the needs of others. We've got more than most people in the world. If you have a car and clean drinking water and shelter, you've got more than 75% of the world. If, if you have money in the bank, even a little bit, you're in the top, whatever, 8% in the world. So in the biblical context, here's what Paul is saying. He's telling Christians who have means to care for other Christians, even open their homes to traveling visitors. Now, we don't really get that because we don't have people traveling around that need a home, but in Paul's time, they did. And could you imagine opening up your home to Paul if you didn't really know if he was uh, the good Paul that you thought you'd heard about or the Paul that you knew about that was killing Christians? All I can do is liken this to my friend who's a pastor in Iran and talking to him, and he says, you know, it's, we don't really invite people, and we have to trust that when God brings people our way that it's God bringing them our way because if we were to invite them to stay in our home and they found out who we were and that we had a church in our home, they could have us imprisoned or killed. He says, so when I invite a stranger in, we're trusting the Lord that they're not somebody trying to find us or figure out that we're Christians. But that's the kind of context that Paul's saying, offer hospitality. He's not saying, just go bake a batch of cookies for somebody. He's saying, hey, hospitality is dangerous. And it's a risk. We're not going to lose our lives usually when we're hospitable. I mean, I guess we could. But meeting the needs of other Christians could still be risky. What if I do this and then I don't have what I need? What if I give this to this person and then I run into trouble? What if I invite them to stay at my house for a little while and they end up staying and never leaving? But this is thinking like an individual and not thinking like a family. Because it's not your responsibility to do it all. It's all of our responsibilities to do what God's called us to do. And so we pass those things off to one another. We bear the load together. What if we obey God and we trust him to give us the means and the grace to do what he's called us to do today? This is where the ordinary turns to an extraordinary. This is where the mundane turns into the miraculous. This is where the power of one everyday Christian can be felt thousands of times over through the body of Christ, God's people, the church. All of this, everything that I just read a moment ago, verse 10, 11, 12, and 13, is impossible without God's help and without God's people doing it together. It's the church called to do this together. Everyday people doing an ordinary mundane duties given to us by God every day as his people, as one. Then God takes all of it and he makes an extraordinary, miraculous group of diverse people, thousands upon thousands the world over, loving and living as one. That's why everyday people in the kingdom of God look like this every day and then the gospel and the 
reality is the only way this happens is because of what Jesus did first. As Scripture says in Romans that through this one man, many were made righteous. Through the act of one man, you and I can now be brothers and sisters of Jesus and one another in the body of Christ because all of a sudden this person, this everyday guy from Galilee, this carpenter from Nazareth, the Nazarene that people look like, isn't this the guy from Nazareth? Every day obeyed his father, day after day, mundane things, conversing, eating meals with ordinary people until it culminated on the cross where it seemed like all that he had lived for was at a loss. Then miraculously, extraordinarily, three days later, he rose from the grave, the first of many. Out of the one has now come thousands of thousands, his church in the earth. And these people of God, God's people, you and I in Focus Church, reflect our Father and Savior today by being those that love the way Christ loved us first. Genuinely. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.